This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I am here today with Tom DeChristopher, who is a senior reporter with S&P Global Commodity Insights that specializes in natural gas utilities and pipeline safety. How'd I do with that, Tom? You did pretty good. All right, and how are you? I'm good. Good. And today, so, so uh, I guess a couple of things to get out of the way that, that first uh, we, we will put in the liner notes more information um, about the, the work that Tom does um, that, that can be found on the S&P Global Capital IQ Pro platform. Um, so so to, to learn more, please check out the liner notes. And if you want to hear more from, from Tom or me or share with us any uh, thoughts or ideas about the podcast, uh, the email address is energysense at ihsmarket.com. Um, and we love to hear from our listeners, so, so please do reach out. And otherwise, we are here, and it is June 24th today, which happens to be Tom's uh, anniversary, his work anniversary with S&P Global, so a so, uh, real celebration for us. And to celebrate, we'll be talking about gas bans and electrification codes, because there's no better way to celebrate a work anniversary than discussing gas bans. And this comes on the, the heels, I guess, of some news in, in Washington state, but that there's been a lot of activity over the past year or two on gas bans and electrification codes, really on the West Coast and some activity in the Northeast. But, but Tom, maybe you could ex- kind of anchor all of us on, on what exactly we're talking about with gas bans um, and electrification codes and how those two things differ from one another. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's good that you mentioned my work anniversary because actually it was about only a few weeks after I started with the company that I'm you know, sitting in the newsroom and my editor sends me a headline that Berkeley, California is going to basically prohibit the use of natural gas in any new buildings that are built in the city. So that's kind of where my history with gas bans and electrification codes started. So and you're it's correlated. A, <laughs> you're correlated closely, with gas bans. My employment with S&P Global is closely correlated with uh, the building electrification movement. <laughs> exact, is basically exactly right. Yeah, so I mean, I basically spent the next three years of my work life, um, or a, a large portion of it, covering this sort of policy push and this movement and the counter movement among the gas utilities. So yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, three years ago, it was uh, the middle of July, Berkeley did this, and it kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere, because I think, like a lot of people, we weren't super, super keyed into the sort of backstory of what was going on before that Berkeley vote, because uh, it was a little quiet. But essentially, uh, you know, what I've you know, pieced together over the three years of covering this is that Berkeley wasn't really a, a shot in the dark. Um, it, it was really around sort of like, say, 2015-ish that, you know, the idea of uh, building electrification as a climate policy was really starting to sort of gain traction. And, you know, people from, you know, organizations like RMI and the New Buildings Institute and the Building Decarbonization Coalition were sort of socializing this idea of building electrification. And specifically as RMI? 
Uh, RMI it was previously known as Rocky Mountain Institute, but they okay. are one of these groups that now just goes by their, um, by their RMI abbreviation. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I always have to explain it. My editors make me explain it in the uh, in the liner notes. Yeah, so they were going around and they were kind of socializing this. So it was really kind of gaining traction, but still like not super well known. You know, a lot of people really focusing on you know renewable portfolio standards and you know renewable electricity and 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 EVs. But around 2018, this all really started to come together in California for a few reasons. You know, one is is simply that California has some pretty stringent climate goals, some of which are legally mandated. You know, they also had you know, the governor at the time, Terry Brown, came out and said, we're going to just be carbon neutral by 2045, economy wide. California is also a state where they allow their cities and towns to pass building and energy codes that are more stringent than the state code. So you've got that going for you. There had also been some work done by the uh, California Public Utility Commission or or commissioned by the CPUC um, to look into whether building electrification reach codes, which are, which are what these uh, more stringent codes are called because they reach beyond the um, state codes. They wanted to look at whether building electrification reach codes would be a cost-effective way of driving down emissions and increasing... Okay building efficiency. And then the last piece I think is really that you have community choice aggregators who are, you know, essentially they procure power on behalf of, you know, cities or, or companies or whatnot. Um, often they're focused on procuring very clean or, or zero carbon power. There were a couple in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, that were looking at, you know, well, how do we help our cities meet this new goal of being carbon neutral by 2045 economy-wide? And so they knew that they could pass reach codes. Um, they had these cost effectiveness studies in their hands and they said, well, hey, why don't we, you know, the, the state building code update is coming up. Why don't we get a bunch of cities to pass building electrification reach codes? And so they came up with a model and the model was basically you can build a building with gas hookup in it, but it's going to have to achieve higher energy standards than if you just build a all electric building, a, a building with electric heating and electric cooking and, and drying and all that sort of thing. And that'll that'll just push building owners to just build all electric, right? Because they don't they want those those standards were at the state level and then each of the cities it's up to the municipalities how they respond to those standards. Is that how it was kind of farmed down to, to Yes. The so essentially how this works it, it how this works is roughly every three years mm -hmm. states will update their their building code. And it's modeled after the the IECC, the um, I believe if I'm going to get this right, the International Code Council. Every three years, they issue model codes for that mm -hmm. states and cities can adopt. And so a lot of you know states will are also on a three year cycle, and then cities are on a three year cycle. So essentially, California was about to update uh, its building codes. And essentially, when you update your building codes on a three year cycle, you're trying to make achieve more efficiency and increasingly with the focus we have on climate you know you're trying to drive down emissions through those as well that's kind of an emerging trend so basically these community choice aggregators were thinking well the, the state code is coming up so we know that all these cities are going to be updating their code to match these the state code so let's release a reach code one of these more stringent codes along with that and it'll just be okay. really efficient that we can you know do it all at one point so they they started doing this and they developed the the code that I mentioned, um, but it's out of this process that some of the cities in the Bay Area, Berkeley being one of them, said, mm -hmm. well, you know, that's okay, we like that, but actually we want to do something maybe a little bit more aggressive or a little simpler. So 
Berkeley came up with this idea that we've now all kind of come to know as the gas ban, where they essentially say, we're not going to give you a permit to build a building if there's gas piping inside of that building. And that essentially gets around this sticky situation that a lot of cities find themselves in, which is that, you know, the state regulators regulate gas distribution, but only up to the meter outside of your home. So Mm -hmm. it's within your authority to say, well, we won't give you a building permit, you know, if, if there's gas piping inside the building. And that essentially creates a ban on gas in new buildings. And then the other city was Menlo Park, which is right across the, um, if you're not familiar with Bay Area geography, I've become very familiar with it over the last <laughs> few years. Uh, Menlo Park, just across the Bay, basically said like, well, we're just going to keep it simple. We're just going to pass an all uh, an electric required reach code where, you know, we're just going to say like, if you build a new building, it's got to just have all electric heating. They actually allowed electric cooking, because, or I'm sorry, gas cooking, because as one of their city officials told me, some people just aren't ready to break up with their gas stove. Right. Uh, so they said, well, you know what? Building heating is most of the load anyway, so we're just going to require uh, electric heating. And that's the one that actually most California cities have now adopted. It's um, They've just passed a reach code that says, hey, when you build a new building, it's got to have all electric heating and there's different versions of it. Different cities have different exemptions based on, you know, their local economy or, mm-hmm. you know, anticipated pushback and that sort of thing. And um, that's why we saw like, you know, immediately like a, a couple dozen cities adopt this because it, it wasn't it didn't come out of nowhere. I think the simple narrative when this all came out was, oh, Berkeley passes and everybody just followed suit. It right. was actually in the process for a couple of years. And is it most cities in California now that have done something or 50% or? No, no. It's so, it's funny. I actually just uh, did some calculations about this. So it's, it's about, so it's, it's, I think now the last I checked, it's over 50. I think it's about 56. I have to confirm those because I was going to confirm them. Um, But uh, yeah, it's about 56 cities. Most of them are in the Bay area. This hasn't caught on so much in Southern California as much until recently. There's a couple reasons for that. You know, one is that, you know, like I explained, you know, this was something that came out of Bay Area community mm-hmm. choice aggregators. And of course, with any policy, you know, it's it's a little easier to follow what your neighbors are doing. Um, PG&E, which provides uh, gas distribution service in um, the Bay Area, also pretty quickly came out and said, you know, as long as the electrification is cost effective, you know, we support this policy. Okay. Um, in Southern California, their gas distributor is SoCal Gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very opposed to this at first, and were kind of supporting these resolutions in in, in towns and cities, saying like, "No, we don't want to pass this. You know, we want to we want to stick with, you know, gas distribution service." So you had that opposition as well. But more recently, actually, Los Angeles and San Diego um, are both moving forward policies. So the calculation I did, and I was using 2020 census estimates, mm-hmm. um, and not including counties. Um, but the 50 cities at the time that had passed this in California, passed a gas ban or an electrification code, they accounted for about 14% of California's population. I think that okay. jumps up. If, if Los Angeles and San Diego pass this, it'll it'll jump up immediately to about 27% of the population. And what's the, uh, you mentioned some of the utility response. What's the consumer response uh, for more of the residential side? And and is is the commercial side on commercial construction are they more indifferent? And I asked partly on, on the idea that residential, you mentioned the gas heating, but but I also, people have gas uh, fireplaces where, you know, I understand gas fireplaces emit more heat than non-gas fireplaces. Yeah, yeah. So there's been, there's kind of a, a coalition that's a 
pretty like reliable coalition that's emerged around opposition to this. Um, you know, we are talking about the Bay Area. It's a it's a pretty politically progressive place. Right. So, you know, it, it's always progressive. <laughs> yeah, very. I think I think Berkeley is often referred to as uh, if not the one of one of the most progressive cities in the United States. I think so. Uh, yeah, so I mean, there's a there's generally a, a pretty good amount of support uh, for this sort of thing. Um, you know, when when you do start seeing some of these codes start to venture into existing buildings, so we in in Piedmont, California, which is actually a pretty a very affluent place, you know, it took them a long time to pass their building electrification code because they were starting to venture into building in some requirements for existing buildings, and that's a really important thing to underscore here is that. All of these policies pretty much apply to new buildings. We're not even getting into the idea yet of electrifying existing buildings. But yeah, you definitely saw some hesitation from city council members um, who were hearing from their constituents because you know they were building things into their electrification code that said, well, if you do this amount of remodel on your on your home, we're going to require you to do you know some electrification or to add some solar panels or that sort of thing. And that was that starts that's when you start to ruffle some feathers. But yeah, on, on the on the coalition that has emerged to oppose this, you can generally um, rely upon the local gas utility to oppose right. this. Oftentimes, you get the pipe fitters unions okay. uh, will be part of that coalition. Oftentimes, you will get real estate mm -hmm. organizations and trade groups that represent builders opposing this. Um, what about and, cooks? Uh, you definitely get cooked. So the Berkeley is being sued by um, the California Restaurant Association, and this is currently in in the U.S. Appeals Court. Uh, okay. It got it got struck down, or I'm sorry, it got dismissed. The case got dismissed in a California court, and uh, it got taken to the appeals court. So yeah, there certainly is. But a, an important thing to note about these as well is that many of these electrification codes have exemptions for commercial kitchens. Because okay. that's one of the the areas they ran into uh, opposition. So, uh, yes, but those are those are generally the the coalition members. Um, also, the uh, uh, makers of, I think it's called the Hearth Patio and Barbecue Association. Uh, <laughs> they they have they were actually really instrumental in defeating uh, when Seattle, Washington first was taking this up in the fall of 2019, right after Berkeley, they, they were pretty instrumental in it. We actually interviewed a guy who runs sort of, a, a just a local store that sells, you know, barbecues and, and sure. fireplaces and, and fire features. And he was, he was, you know, kind of a local organizer and, uh, joined that coalition. And, and you mentioned the gas utilities are, are not surprisingly that, that they are against this. I mean, one of the questions that I have with these types of initiatives is who then supports the grid, right? That that if 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 all the new development and, and rehab home, which is going to be, I assume, more the commercial and or affluent residences, um, get off the gas grid, then that leaves the gas grid to a shrinking group of ratepayers, and I would assume a lower income group of ratepayers. So does that come up? I assume in the utilities backlash is maybe too strong a word, but but objections. Yeah, that certainly comes up in their objections, you know, this this idea of kind of a death spiral where, you yeah. know, you have like you described, you know, you have a, a shrinking pool of ratepayers who are paying for to maintain the same size system essentially. So yeah, there I mean it's it's a really big question and and, and you know, different uh, municipalities and different states are dealing this, with this in different ways. So, you know, the California Public Utility Commission right now has a proceeding going on about essentially how to start 
phasing out, strategically phasing out parts of the gas grid. Um, mm -hmm. And so essentially, you know, they want to, instead of doing the sort of pipeline replacement for system integrity purposes, you know, to prevent accidents, to, you know, replace, replace old leak prone pipe with generally, you know, new plastic piping, instead of putting money into that, they would be looking for opportunities to sort of electrify, you know, a block or, you know, maybe not necessarily so much a neighborhood yet. I think that's maybe a little ambitious, but the problem you run into there is that, you know, if, if one neighbor in the cul-de-sac says, I don't, I don't want to give up my gas stove. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go over to electric, then that creates a problem, you know? Um, so they're, they are thinking about how to do this strategically in a way where we're sort of balancing out the utility investments and, you know, making sure that, you know, we don't, leave low income ratepayers, you know, to to shoulder the burden of maintaining the cost of the gas distribution system. And do they have an answer for that yet? Or or is there are people just aware that it's perhaps an emerging problem or, or certainly an emerging problem and working through it as, as we, we get closer to it? Yeah, I mean, that that proceeding is ongoing. You know, it's raised right. a number of issues, one of being the one that I just added that, like, you mm -hmm. have to have total buy-in. Um, another is that, you know, we know that, like, people forget that, like, LA is, like, the largest, you know, manufacturing base in, in mm -hmm. you know, the United States. So there's a lot of industrial customers. So, you know, there's questions around, you know, how do we keep those industrial customers connected to the grid? You know, we know we want to use things like renewable natural gas, which is, you know, essentially um, waste methane from places like farms and landfills that's captured and processed into pipeline quality gas. We know we want to use that and, you know, low carbon forms of hydrogen to, you know, uh, support these, you know, decarbonize these hard to electrify sectors like, you know, high heat industrial customers. Uh, so we have to be careful about like not retiring portions of the grid that will serve those customers. Um, I mean, you do actually see utilities tackling this as well. So, you know, in New York State, where the utility commission here has essentially challenged gas utilities to put forward what they call non-pipe alternatives, you know, you see companies like Con Edison, you know, saying we're going to look for ways to, you know, retire part of parts of the gas grid. We're going to look for ways to do sort of geothermal heating districts. You know, we're going to look, can we do that? You know, and um, yeah, so they're thinking about how to do this and thinking about how to how to do it strategically. And you mentioned New York State. You're talking uh, to, to me today from from Brooklyn. Um, yeah. I think the most recent headline around this, we, we, we've spent most of our time today talking about California, but was Washington State, um, you know, so yeah. both on the Pacific Coast. Um, talk to me about what's happening e either in Washington or as well some of the perhaps the northeastern municipalities or states where this idea is also being considered or implemented. Yeah, yeah. So um, the places that we're really tracking right now are Washington, Oregon, uh, Massachusetts, New York, Vermont, and I think Maryland is popping up for us now. Okay. Um, so yeah, so Washington and Massachusetts are kind of a nice are, are a nice pair to look at because both of them, uh, Seattle and a town called Brookline, Massachusetts, which is just outside of uh, Boston, they Boston both Marathon runs through it. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. I think I think. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you, can you tell I'm not a runner? Um, yeah. So they both uh, Seattle and Brookline both tried to do this basically right after Berkeley, and they were in conversation with Berkeley. 
and so uh, in Seattle, it, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it didn't work. Um, you had sort of an outgoing city council member who was like basically trying to ram this through by the end of his tenure at the end of the year. And it, the opposition just kind of sunk it. But what was actually happening at the same time was that like California, Seattle was about to go through its building code update. And so they put forward some proposals to um, basically require electric heat pumps in new multifamily and commercial buildings. Um, in Washington, cities and towns can only amend the multifamily and commercial code. So um, they they started that process moving. And by, uh, I believe I'm getting my dates right, uh, by early 2021, they had passed an energy code update that said, you know, new multifamily and commercial buildings are going to have to have all electric uh, heating and, and in some cases all electric space heating and in, in some cases all electric water heating as well. Um, and so just a year after that, and it's funny, I was told at the time, you know, you're going to want to watch Washington because as Seattle goes, Washington often goes mm -hmm. just a, a, about a year later, Washington became the first uh, state to pass really sort of sweeping statewide um, building electrification mandates in its statewide energy code update. And importantly, they're now actually moving forward a code for an all electrification mandate for residential buildings, which is important because, as I just mentioned, local cities and towns in Washington can't, am can't amend the residential code. So yeah. we could very soon have a case where Washington basically requires all electric uh, new building in commercial, multifamily, and residential. The experience over in Massachusetts was very different. They actually did pass a gas ban by November 2019. But in Massachusetts, the attorney general reviews all town bylaws mm -hmm. to make sure that they don't conflict with any state laws. And the attorney general, despite supporting building electrification as a policy, struck this one down. She said it, it you know, it, it conflicts with the state regulation of of gas distribution. About a year later, Brookline tried this again using a slightly different method, essentially using their um, their authority over zoning. Mm -hmm. uh, and that one just got struck down as well. So, you know, what you've had happen there is that state Democrats have basically stepped in to try to give local municipalities the authority to just pass some sort of gas ban. Um, the, their first stab at it was passing a law that required the state to create this new stretch energy code. Uh, Massachusetts already has a stretch energy code that most towns and cities actually have adopted, but this was basically an even more stringent one. And the legislative intent was really just to give cities and towns the authority to just pass something like a gas ban. Mm -hmm. The proposal for that came out in February, and it did not give them that authority. It was it was not what really kind of the developers of this proposal wanted. So essentially, now we're stuck in this position where state Democrats are kind of have put forward a number of pieces of legislation, one of which would start a, a pilot project that would allow, I think, 12 towns and cities to basically pilot an all electrification code. And they're basically just, you know, they're kind of at a bit of a log jam with the Baker administration. Interestingly, the AG, Maura Healy, is running for governor right now. And she, okay. as part of her platform, she said, if she's elected, she's basically gonna give towns and cities the the ability to pass gas bans. And are those, so you mentioned those 12 cities that I, it sounded like are on a bit, bit of a, I guess, test bunny example. Are they all 12 contiguous or are they disparate? I mean, it would seem to me that the gas grid, part of the reason gas grids or any grid would work is because of the contiguous nature of the end use. 
and yeah. by leaving it up to individual cities, if if I decide something 100 miles away from somebody else who decides something, it would seem to be very difficult to manage a gas grid where people are making independent decisions like that. It is which I guess speaks to in a weird way the positivity of a state level decision. I mean, has mm-hmm. has that fractured uh, I'll say fractured coalition if that's the right word for it. Has that come up in these types of conversations or debates? Yeah, so you're you're basically you you hit the nail on the head. This is kind of the one of the main criticisms of building electrification codes and gas bans. The, the idea that doing it at the municipal level creates sort of like a patchwork of policies mm-hmm. that then becomes difficult for you know builders and unions and all all these groups that have opposed them to sort of deal with. To answer the second or maybe the first part of that question, this originally started in, around the Boston area with um, uh, towns and cities like Cambridge. Arlington, Brookline, but the same group that we were just talking about, RMI, they've kind of stepped in to try to help organize and they've started a sort of a, I believe it's called the Massachusetts Building Electrification Accelerator. And they really made a big effort to expand this movement beyond just the Boston area. So they got a number of cities and towns from including in central mass and western Massachusetts to sort of start putting forward uh, proposals to move forward electrification. And, you know, there there was, I know, a letter that was sent, I believe, either to the Baker administration or to the or to the state legislature, and it, it was signed by dozens of towns and cities, or or representatives from dozens of towns and cities. So there is interest in this, in you know, not just a handful or not just mm-hmm. a dozen of towns and cities, but um, really, um, while it's concentrated in, around Boston, um, there there has been support expressed for this by representatives from towns, you know, all over Massachusetts. And how far upstream would this gas ban? Or these gas bans particularly move that if if thirty percent of the power grid is gas fired, give or take, a, a lot of these electrified homes would be relying on mm. electricity that comes from natural gas. Is that impacted by any of the residential commercial bans or or codes that we're talking about? Yeah, so that's another issue that comes up, particularly among the opposition is, well, you're just moving the emissions upstream, right? Because, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're not going to have any on-site emissions from combusting fossil fuels in the home, but you're going to you know, you're, you're going to require more electricity. And in a lot of these places, you know, yeah, get natural gas fired power is still a big part of the, the mix. So I think the response to that from people who support building electrification is that, you know, basically all of these states where this is happening have goals of having a basically a 100% renewable electric grid by about 2040 or 2045. And the thinking is that, you know, a home heating system lasts about 15 years. So if we allow buildings to continue to install fossil fuel fired home heating systems, we're going to be locking in those emissions for, you know, 15, 20 years when, you know, we know over that time span, the grid is going to be getting increasingly cleaner. It's going to be getting increasingly zero carbon or moving towards zero carbon. Uh, so we don't really want to do that. That's kind of the thinking mm-hmm. on, on that side. RMI did do some analysis around this, and and they found that in, I believe, 46 of the lower 48 states, passing some sort of electrification code or, or, or advancing building electrification would be net positive in terms of emissions. 
because of what I just sort of explained, that sort of 15 year, 15 to 20 year timeline for those for those that equipment. I will note that the American Gas Association does dispute that. They say that their their calculations don't show the same thing. But generally, that is the thinking. You know, we don't want to lock in new emissions by putting in these fossil fuel heating systems if our grids are going to be getting cleaner anyway. You know, we want to we want to start transitioning in new buildings. That's the thinking. Okay, so 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 2045 that that will put you at about what your 26 year anniversary. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So so as we're looking ahead to that, what are the things that that we should be paying attention to? And, and we've spent most of this conversation talking about more of the progressive communities that that have, uh, I'll say, less of a connection with with some of primary energy businesses. Do we do we expect this type of codes um, or, or thought process to move inland? Um, and, and I'm I'm from Texas, or I'm li- living in Texas, so so they produce a lot of natural gas. Pennsylvania yeah. on the East Coast produces a lot of natural gas. How how do you what, what should we be paying attention to, and what direction do you think this is moving? Yeah, well, I mean, if electrification happens, and and it is happening for some market reasons, and, you know, especially sort of Southeast states. Um, But if electrification happens, it will not be because of these mandates in much of the country, because essentially in the central US, mostly, we've got 20 states that have passed state laws that prohibit towns, cities, counties from passing anything that looks like a gas ban. Um, They're generally referred to as fuel choice legislation by supporters um, or sometimes preemption bills because they preempt local authority over restricting gas use in buildings. Uh, So, yeah, your state, Texas, is one of them. Uh, So, yeah, this this policy basically will hit a big roadblock as if it tries to move inland. I think we're probably starting to see that policy plateau, the policy of basically banning gas bans um, because it's had the easiest road in states that are controlled by Republicans. We start to see it run into some some problems. It's in states that are not controlled by Republicans. It's died in committee twice in Colorado. The Senate Democrats in Virginia basically stripped it out of some legislation this year. It didn't pass in North Carolina, or I'm sorry, uh, the governor vetoed it in North Carolina. And there wasn't a big enough majority that passed it to, it wasn't veto-proof, basically. So you're going to want to watch that. I think one of the things you're going to want to watch is this percolating to the state level. So New York City passed a gas ban. New York State, as part of its Climate Leadership and uh, Community Protection Act, is basically looking at how to do this on the state level. You're going to want to watch building codes, I think. You know, more and more cities are trying to tackle this. Cities and states are trying to tackle this through building codes. Uh, Chicago, or I'm sorry, Illinois just passed a law that has a, a pretty stringent stretch energy code and basically supports but does not mandate electrification. Maryland just passed a climate law that essentially asks state officials to look at developing a all-electric component in, in code updates. Uh, so you're going to want to watch uh, this percolating to the state level. Going to want to watch. You're, I'm sorry to all the energy listeners, but like me, you're going to have to learn about uh, the building code cycle, building code <laughs> update cycle. It's it's just part of the game now. And then you're just going to want to watch. You know, are do more states put in place state laws that that prohibit this? Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess one one more quick question, then I'll let you go. Um, And and depending on the answer to this question, maybe this is another conversation we can have at a future date. But internationally, are are we seeing parallel activity or or is there a model? Is everybody watching California or is California watching somebody else? 
Yeah. So my my colleague Camila Nashert is actually somebody just told me she's working on a um on a on a story on on gas bans in uh in Europe. And okay. um I know especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, electrifying buildings is something that people are are thinking that they need to maybe accelerate. I think probably maybe the one thing that I did not mention that is probably very important to know in terms of when we think about the future of this is the idea of electrifying existing buildings. And mm -hmm. we also got a kind of a, a landmark in Denver, Colorado, because Denver was the first city to pass kind of a comprehensive building decarbonization policy that uh, includes building electrification mandates as part of the, as a key component of the, the building decarbonization policy. And essentially what they want to do is set um, some timelines, I believe in 2025 and 2027, where, you know, when your gas furnace dies, you're going to have to replace it with at least a a partial electric system. So their idea is they they want to push partial electrification. Um, they're a summer peaking electric grid, so they will use the spare capacity that they have in the winter to provide electricity for building heating, and uh, you'll still be able to use gas uh, in your in your building in the winter when it's really cold. But essentially, they want to um, electrify most of your building heating. So I think that could be a model that other cities follow because there is a question, especially in cold climates, what do we do about the very coldest days? And and Denver kind of tackled that that question recently. Okay, so, so, so plenty to discuss, uh, plenty yeah. to pay attention to and plenty to come back and discuss. Well, well, well Tom, I've enjoyed our conversation and had some fun. So uh, congratulations again on your anniversary and I hope we can do this again sometime. Definitely. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.